Because a mission statement is just that. It's just a statement. But It's something to drive your everyday actions. Exactly. Everybody at this table, even making chips, equip and inspire manufacturing leaders. Go. If we don't take the mission seriously, if that doesn't drive everything that we do, then it's just plaque on the wall. Exactly. What's the uh, mission statement that you were just quoting next? Oh, yeah. So I was watching The Office with my wife last night and Dunder Mifflin, limitless paper for a paperless world. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Jim, you're planning on going to IMTS, right? Absolutely, Nick. I wouldn't miss it for anything. What about your peers? Do you think other job shop owners are going to be there? Well, you know, they should be. I would hope that they would be there. It's the place to grab the new technology and bring it back to your shop and implement. And a lot of things go on your wish list. Well, you know, there was a period of time when people were concerned about going to a big show like IMTS, but I think that's in the past. And in fact, IMTS is anticipating that their audience of job shop owners and job shop employees is going to be up 15%, which is really exciting. Good metric. So what should people like you do to prepare for the show? I would download the app. I would also go to imts.com, register right now. Register now. Get your hotel and plan your event. We'll see you there, guys. Welcome to Making Chips, where we are all about equipping and inspiring manufacturing leaders to make their company more valuable. And today, we've got some great guests to learn from. So let's cue the entrance music and dive in. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts. Let's make some chips. Jason, I have a question. Yes. Do you know what your company is worth right now? You know, I have my balance sheet. So I can look at that. And then I also have some indications based on EBITDA multiples, but I'm not very confident in what I think it's worth versus what it would be worth on the marketplace. Although I do know I get emails and phone calls all the time, people wanting to buy Zengers. Yeah, those come. So the value of anything is what someone's willing to pay for. Exactly. There you go. And that's not always a fixed, just like selling a house, scientific thing. Exactly. It's how much do they love that house? Yeah. Your grandma's house? Are you getting a special deal? Was it? Prince's house. (laughs) I've bought five companies over the years. And so I've been more on the acquisition side. So I do know that dance of how much is it worth to me versus how much is it worth the seller to make the deal. There's definitely an art to that. Absolutely. And you and my dad have talked about M&A stuff as you've both been through some of that. Mm -hmm. My role in M&A for our family business is to just find the opportunities to get conversations started. There you go. But I don't go through the whole deal of... You don't get involved in the financial side. No. Because they wouldn't want me involved. I'm right. horrible at math. I don't understand yeah. it. <laughs> but all right. So you're not exactly sure what your company's no. worth, but you've got some ideas. I've got some ideas. Yeah. Do you think your value would be much higher than... I'm in my 40s. Really? And I, I could have comp- sworn you were in your 20s. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> so somebody would have to give me a really big number in order for me to get out because I just have no motivation yeah. to want to sell my company. And most of the time when you get these emails and phone calls from people that are looking to acquire your company, they're always talking about exit plan. Well, I don't have an exit plan in my 40s. You know what I mean? I have a vision and I know what I want to go for, but I don't have an exit plan at this place. I always tell people, everybody has a number. Like People are like, oh, I'm never going to sell. Yeah, you will. If somebody gives you a number, you'll sell. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It just matters what is that number. Well, that's where I was going to go next. So 
we're a multi-generational family business. It's, it's kind of a German manufacturing thing to keep it in the family sure. and keep passing yeah. it on. And you guys are similar, right? Yeah. You're passing it on. So I think in our situation, we might have a higher value than what's realistic. Right. And so someone would have to throw a, a wild... gigantic number. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it's probably not going to happen. Sure. So I have a feeling that we're on this episode, we're going to be talking about valuations. Yes, we are. And specifically how to make your company more valuable. I'm all ears. So I want to hear it. Because I mean, that's the name of the game. What do yeah. we do before we jump into the episode? We always do news. Manufacturing news. Yeah. You got something? I have some very relevant news to this episode. Well, we do something else before we go there is we talk about what's going on in our business. So tell yeah. me what's going on with you. Well, for me right now, we've made some new hires. Okay. We've shut down one of our smaller business groups mm-hmm. to focus on growth in the more profitable areas. So that transition has been quite a challenge. Quite Great. a challenge. It's, it's, sometimes I think it's as hard to shut something down as it is to start something up. Oh, yeah. Incredibly. But, but I think in the past of my company, when we've made those decisions to stop doing something that's not making the right kind of money, it's always been valuable. It's, yeah. it's always been a good idea. It's just sometimes you have to rip off the Band-Aid. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? I'll just go along those same lines. And I've been talking about this. I probably mentioned it several times on making chips. The history of our company is that we started out as a retail business, and then we moved into a B2B industrial supply company in the 60s. And we've always had this strong showroom counter business where shop owners would come to our counter and they would buy toolboxes and tools and precision tools and cutting tools and everything else. And that is just such a declining piece of our business is almost negligible at this point. Right. But just based on the history of your company, it's always hard to shut those things down. But finally, it's we need to focus on our integration customers, our VMI customers, our vending machine customers. And the team is just, we got to do this. We got to lock the doors. We locked the doors during COVID. We got to lock the doors again. We have to just full-fledged shut down that part of the business. And I was like, that's fine. Just do it. Give me a plan. Let me know how you guys want to handle it because people are going to still be knocking on the door. So we need to figure out how to handle those situations in a dignified... Earl from around the corner is going to be mad at you. No, we don't have those kind of clients. We just have a lot of small shop owners that we want to service them. We don't even accept cash or anything like that anymore. So we just need to figure out how do we handle small shops because they're still valuable, still valuable in the manufacturing industry. But how do we do it in a manner that also works for us? Yeah. The team's going to put a plan together. And you've been talking about that that transition. So it's it's been a slow rip of the band. Yeah, well, it's hard because especially when it's part of your history, which I know is one of the businesses that you're shutting down is part of your history. Exactly. It makes it difficult. Yeah. But in the name of doing what's best for the business, sometimes it just needs to be done. Yeah. We've got to write history the way yeah. we want. Yeah, there you go. So what's the manufacturing news? Okay, so this comes from a website, PwC. They're data analysts yeah. and, and specifically doing work on deals, mergers and acquisitions sure. in industrial manufacturing. So the 2022 mid-year outlook. Industrial manufacturing M&A activity was stable in the first half of 2022 as deals progressed toward completion, despite uncertainty from global economic and market influences. These influences, such as inflation, volatile raw material prices, and availability, including freight costs, will likely challenge M&A through the rest of 2022 and into 2023. So inflation, crazy raw material prices, availability, and freight costs. He just listed all of our biggest problems. Mm-hmm. And well, I would have to add labor. Yeah, absolutely. Given the potential shift to onshoring for manufacturing, localization rather than cross-border transactions will likely be a primary focus area for M&A in the near term. And the last episode we did, that was my news. You couldn't make it. You had a family emergency, but the news was all about what's been happening with reshoring and specifically reshoring versus foreign direct investment. 
And so this point here, the localization rather than cross-border transactions will likely be a primary focus area for M&A in the near term. That's interesting. So I talk about it on the show, some of the books that I'm reading. So there's this book that I have on my list that I'm going to be reading. It's supposed to paint a dark picture of the future, but I think it's going to be an interesting read as it relates to manufacturing. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit in the future. But the book's called The End of the World is Just the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. So we went through this process where everything was shift everything to China, shift all this stuff to Taiwan, shift all this stuff to Africa, whatever it is. And this book is going to talk about how globalization is going to be changing very drastically over the year. It's kind of funny. One of our guests is nodding his head. Yes. I don't know if he has read the book, is wants to read the book, but we're going to bring him on and we're going to talk about this evaluation a little bit. But I want to talk about this later after I read this book, because I think it's going to become very important to manufacturing leaders and the whole reshoring initiative and everything like that. I think that the world in 10 or 20 years is going to be very different than what it is now. And I think preparing for that now is very important. So we were talking on the phone about a book that I read called The World is Flat. Oh, okay. It's kind of like the opposite of what oh, you're okay, describing. Okay. So it was more about this globalized economy and how it's all connected. Some things are flat and some things are not, I think is what it comes down to. I think to. COVID, as we see here in, in the article, all this supply chain disruption is really changing. Right. And we probably needed something like that mm-hmm. to cause us to really own our own future yep. in a way. Yep. Not to be totally dependent on something across the world because yep. when that shuts off, we just felt the pain. Yeah. So. so it'll be interesting. How about we introduce our guests and we get into this? Yeah, let's do that. So we have three guests here today. Paul Van Mater. Everybody knows Paul. Yeah, everybody knows Paul. Welcome, Paul. Paul, do we have to introduce you? Or can we just say, hi, Paul? Hey, guys. (laughs) That's funny. Hi, Paul. Baritone voice of manufacturing ERPs. He's here again today. And if you don't know Paul and you're listening for the first time, there's definitely a bunch of episodes out there. If you like what he has to say, go back and go to makingchips.com and search for Paul. If you want to make your company better, Paul is a guy to know. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) So Paul from ProShop and then two gentlemen from EGS, which is EBITDA Growth Systems, Michael Watkins, the founder, and Dave Kapkovitz, the other principal and co-owner. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks a lot. Normally, we would introduce our guests and kind of give a bio, but I think you guys gave a very compelling introduction of what your company does. And I think you guys would say it better than we would. So could you let us know who you are? and what your company does. Well, I'm Dave Kapkovitz. I'm one of the owners of EBITDA Growth Systems. Thankfully, partner to Mike Watkins, who's absolutely an awesome partner. There's your plug, buddy. (laughs) Thank you very much, Dave. (laughs) And we just, in one sentence, it's just our mission statement. We impact lives through improving business performance. That's our passion. That's what we're all about. Great. And more specifically for manufacturing companies, would you say? Specific manufacturing and trades. Yep. Yeah. We stay right there. Great. Okay, great. And you guys came from a shop background, right? Yeah, I'm a tool and die maker by trade, and I've owned I've owned a couple of machine shops. Tell us a little bit about your manufacturing story, like how you started in manufacturing and then got to the place you are here today. And then Mike would love to hear your story too. Well, I started as a machinist in Indiana, and I grew that to become a toolmaker. And shortly after that, I began just the I have the entrepreneur spirit, and I started a business in manufacturing. Uh, was able to dive into the orthopedic field and build. It surgical implants and instruments, and I loved it, and I sold that company in 2010, and that was one of nine companies I've been able to sell in the last 26 years, and I was fortunate. Nine? Nine, yes, Not, sir. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> That's so pretty good. So I've loved that entrepreneur mindset. Great. 
Great. And how about you, Mike? My background is a little more varied than that. I'm uh, an attorney. I uh, practiced law in the D.C. area for about five years I um, in software. In fact, I've uh, been part of three software exits, moved out to Colorado, had a software company in the e-learning space called Gen21, and it was one of the first e-learning software companies available on the market. And we sold that to Boeing back in the early 2000s. And then I started consulting around training and development of managers. Okay. Really had a passion for that. And then I had another software company for employee engagement. Our first client was Sports Authority, and it was a great run. And then Sports Authority went the way of the dodo bird. And so we shut that company down and, and I really had to decide what am I going to do next? So I started doing some research and what jumped off the page for me was the baby boomer demographic and the fact that baby boomers were going to start retiring and selling their companies. And they're going to use the sale of their company to fund their retirement. But when you pull back a couple of layers of the onion, you realize that most baby boomer business owners are going to try to sell their company to fund their retirement, but they have less than a 20% chance of selling their company because most companies weren't saleable. Mm -hmm. That's a very sad. And I can tell you from experience looking at companies to acquire, that's a very true statement. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I wrote a book called Scaling the Exit for that baby boomer demographic and started a practice, ran into Dave. I was supporting his company and he said, I'm going to walk away from this job I have, this $300,000 job and come work with you. And I was like, if I had a dollar for every person who said they're going to leave their company and come work with me, right. I'd be rich. So yep. I was like, yeah, sure. And I'm telling you, three weeks later, knock on the door, there there's was. Dave, I'm ready. And I was like, are you serious? Yes. Wow. I was like, let's do this. He says, but I don't like the company name. What do we do? And I said, <laughs> we grow EBITDA, man. We grow profits. Well, why don't we call ourselves EBITDA Growth Systems? That was about four years ago. And, and what was and the name again? Scaling to Exit. Oh, so the name of your book was also the name of your business. Yes, I wrote okay. the book to start the, the gotcha, practice. Gotcha. Yes. And so we have been pursuing our brand promise of doubling the profits of our clients in three years where we give them our money back. What we find is a lot of baby boomer business owners come to us and say, we're ready to sell. And we tell them, you should have talked to us three years ago. Right. Right now, you, you aren't ready to sell. So that's a pretty audacious claim. Double the value of your business in three years or your money back. Yes, it is. But it's not one that we've found to be risky. Let me ask, have you ever had to give anyone's money? We have not. Okay. In fact, we typically are in pretty good shape after about eight months. Wow. So I imagine you don't just take any business, right? Are you selective about who you take? Yes. So EGS, the model, works for any company in the world. But do you know how much money it would cost you to market to any company in the world? You can't. It's too much. Yeah, you have to niche down your... Totally. ...who you want to talk to. Is that where Dave came in and you said, we need to look at manufacturing, we need to focus on this industry specifically? Is that the expertise that you brought in? Yeah, when I owned my first company, I worked day and night, 24-7, had four children, never got to see them. And there were so many things I didn't do right in my first company. Mm -hmm. And I look back and say, man, I wish somebody came alongside me and taught me the things that made my time valuable. Yeah. To give me more time with my children to put more money in the bank. Yeah. So I wanted Mike and I to work with people that we've walked a mile in their shoes because as an owner, I hired a consultant and they come in with a plan. Hey, we got these five steps we're going to take you through. They had no idea what it took at four in the morning when you had a machine broke down. Right. They had no idea what it was like to have two guys call out on the same day. They had no idea it was like when a delivery truck broke down six miles away from somebody and you can't get parts that are due that day. They'd never experienced that. And I'm like, I don't want to talk with people. I don't understand what they're doing. You know, Paul's awesome, but I could never tell him anything about a software company. Right. 
sure. I would listen and learn. But if in Paul's shop, I could walk up and say, hey, you learn this in your shop and I learned this in my shop. Hey, how do we leverage that? Well, and that's one of the great things. I mean, making chips, we started on that. It's like, we want to talk to manufacturing leaders. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Specifically, we don't want to talk to everybody. You know what I mean? We don't even know what most people do, but we know manufacturing. And that's why we started here. Okay. So you brought the manufacturing aspect. Paul, how do you come into the picture? You flew these guys out. We got to meet them. I'm really blessed to have met these guys, but tell us that story. Sure. Well, when I learned their mission statement, and we have a few shared, so we were introduced through a shared customer, you know, a customer that uses ProShop and was also using their service. And when I got to meet them and hear their brand promise and their mission, I'm like, the mission is almost verbatim what ours is, Mm -hmm. except we're a software company. So I'll just read ours. We deliver powerful manufacturing software by deeply understanding our clients' challenges in order to meaningfully improve their businesses and in turn their communities. That's great. And you know, it's it's funny, Paul, I'm working on our new mission statement and it kind of goes along that line of changing people's businesses through the tooling that we sell them. And, and, And it's true. And if you have that passion, you really truly can do that. Because a mission statement is just that. It's just a statement. But It's something to drive your everyday actions. Exactly. Everybody at this table, even making chips, equip and inspire manufacturing leaders. Go. If we don't take the mission seriously, if that doesn't drive everything that we do, then it's just plaque on the wall. Exactly. What's the uh, mission statement that you were just quoting next? Oh, yeah. So I was watching The Office with my wife last night and Dunder Mifflin, limitless paper for a paperless world. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Go ahead, Paul. It just seemed like there was a great connection with what their mission was and what ours is. And we have clients all the time that reach out to us and say, ProShop's been great. We love using it, but we need more help, more help with how to run the business. And we've advised a lot of clients the best we can, but that's not the business we're in. We don't have the bandwidth to be consultants. So I knew that there was a need with our client base. And when these guys came along, I just like, this is a match made in heaven. So we got to partner up. So that's great. We're basically, our clients are using their consulting, their coaching, but ProShop is the mechanism by which they're measuring the results. And okay. Where the data comes from originally, I would exact, assume. Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, they get down and dirty on the shop floor, right? They're talking about... That's our mantra. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they talk about spindle uptime and scrap rate and yeah. all these things that ProShop directly And that measures. drives EBITDA. Absolutely. Right. Sure it does. Hey guys, you know Zometry, one of our partners, is now selling materials, right? Stainless aluminum, copper, brass. Oh yeah. I just reached out to them the other day for a big aluminum job that we're going to be doing in our shop. And I found out that they will actually lock in the price that costs per pound for that material for up to 90 days. They'll ship you tiered releases over the time period that you want to. They'll inventory it for you at a locked price. Really? Yes. I think they call that their flex program. That is right, Jason. It's called their flex program. It's just another tool for our machine shops to stay ahead of an up and down market. So where does a manufacturing leader go to get access to the flex? Zometry.com forward slash supplies hyphen flex. Great. So that's one thing I love about both your stories is there's real shop floor origins. And in this industry, especially when someone is a fish out of water and they they call it a lathe instead of a lathe, it's just like, all right, you know, I got to call somebody else. So I'm confident that this episode is going to help our audience. And that's the whole point. We've been saying this word EBITDA, EBITDA, EBITDA. And for those of you that don't know, earnings before interest taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which is probably the metric that most defines the value of a business. But then there's the EBITDA, and then there's, okay, so 
that's like how profitable you are, essentially, right? But then various multiples of that EBITDA number is how companies are bought and sold, from my understanding, right? And you can make your company more profitable, and then you can increase your multiple, right? Those are kind of the two levers that you need to pull. So why don't we talk about that specifically? Like, how does your business help with the EBITDA side? And then what are some things that our audience can do to increase the multiple? Okay. Well, I mean, one of the first things you got to do is you have to understand where you are. Am I in the aerospace market? Am I in the medical market? Am I in the automotive market or the locomotive market? Or am I servicing gas and oil? And what does the market say my multiple is there? Do I have one customer that's 95% of my business? Am I a single shop owner with nobody behind me? Do I have no succession plan? Mm. And so basically, the average multiple of a machine shop in the United States is 3.6 times. So you have a small company. So we're talking multiples right now, how to change that multiple. Right. So basically, your EBITDA is a number called 100. Call it 100 million, 100,000, 1 million, whatever. But if it's 100... Use a round number for my sake, please. Yeah, 100. <laughs> so it'd be $360 to be average, sure. right? It'd be that average price. But if you grow up a management team to where you don't have to be there all the time, it might change to 500. I was just going to say that one of the levers, I think, for multiples is can you go on a vacation without taking your laptop with you? That's perfect. Because if you can't do that, nobody's going to want to buy your business because it's just going to be a headache. Right. They're buying a job. They're not buying a business. Yeah. They're buying a job and they're buying a headache. And that's why when we have a company approach us and say, can you help us move our company today? We say, you should have come to us three yeah. years ago because- Five years gonna... ago. You should be thinking about it all Absolutely. the time. It's funny because Jim and Nick give me a little bit of crap, but I talked about the fact that I went on a sabbatical last year. I took off four weeks and I didn't take my laptop with me and my team kicked butt. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that a buyer wants to see. And they're going to increase their multiple based on that because they don't want to buy an aggravation. They want to buy a business that they can grow. Yes. We just do it because we're jealous. <laughs> we're jealous that he can leave for four weeks. Because what you said, Dave, about early in your career, time you missed from your family. My dad was working all the time. His dad was working even more and I worked too much. So I'm a little jealous of the four week off thing because I don't feel like I could do it. But Well, I was doing this as a gift to my... Well, we can get into this another time. But the team, they thrive when they know that they've been given autonomy. That's part of it. But that's a whole nother discussion. Yeah, back to you because I just kind of jumped in over you, Michael. Oh, that's so. okay. So the whole idea of the multiple that Dave just talked about relative to your industry, relative to how autonomous is your company, the EBITDA side, which is nothing but operating profit. is We use the term EBITDA, but we really are talking about operating profit. For us, accounting, that's the language of business. Sure. And so if you understand accounting, then your business can talk to you. If you don't understand accounting, it simply won't talk to you. And so 90%, and that's I'm not exaggerating, 90% of the companies we reach out to when they contact us and we ask them for some financials, they give us tax returns or they say, we really don't do that. Wow, and, 90%. Yeah, so yeah. they don't have like a detailed P&L that you can comb through. Right. Or, or right. they might, but they say... QuickBooks, they have the data, but oh, if I have money in the bank, I'm in good shape. Yeah, yeah. or it's not accurate, you know. Or my CPA gives me this at the end of the year. Oh. So it's, you know, it's a one-time shot. And so when we want to raise their profits, we need a P&L to work from. And we need a balance sheet as well, but, but really P&L is the focus. And more specifically, the gross margin on the P&L, because that's what we can control. The stuff below the line, we say stuff below the line is stuff below gross margin. That's usually longer term fix. You know, you're in a lease. It's mm -hmm. a two-year lease. Sure. It is what it is. But gross profits is revenue 
It's material costs and it's labor costs. Mm -hmm. And that's where ProShop comes in, gives that business owner an understanding of, of how efficient, how productive is their workforce, which is the majority of their expense. And then what are some strategies around buying materials? And then it's almost always the case, charging enough for your product. Mm. Well, these new inflationary pressures have taught us you can raise your prices. Because mm -hmm. I used to hear that all the time from my clients as I'm like talking to them about their business. Why haven't you raised your prices? Well, my customers won't let me. That's not necessarily true. Are you adding enough value to the customer experience that you can raise your prices? Well, maybe start there, but you can raise your prices. That's not a thing. But now you have to, or else you're going to just go out of business. Let me know if you agree with this. In this industry, it's kind of a do-it-yourself. We're manufacturers. We can make things. So I think what that does is you think about, well, what I'm making for my customer, maybe he could make for himself, and it causes you to undervalue what you're selling your product for. Yeah, I think you said one key thing, value. So many people don't understand the value. I mean, we have one story of a gentleman that was running a five-axis machine shop making extremely complex parts. Uh, most of his billets were running twenty to $30,000 titanium billets he was buying. And he was charging like he was running bridge ports? $65 an hour. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> five-axis work with 100 critical features, more than 20 of them within a half thou. And, wow. and you're looking at him and say, what are you doing? And he's like, well, I'm going out of business. And this is, I, you know, I'm maxed out on my credit line. I have my house. I have a lien against my house for this. That's like heartbreaking. So what happens is this gentleman comes up to us at, at one of uh, our events and says, I need your help. This is my last shot. And we work with him for about 18 months. And we start measuring and we say, you have to charge what your value. Do you understand what other people in the market charge for what you're doing? And once he started doing that, there's no debt on his equipment. There's no debt on his house. There's no debt on his business. And he sold for like six and a half times what he was worth 18 months ago. Wow, that's great. And so this guy's a very stoic individual. And mm -hmm. at the end of last year, he comes up to Mike and I just like almost with a tear in his eye, giving us a hug saying, thank you. You have no idea what you did. You changed my life. Wow, that's amazing. But the risk for some of these companies that have one or two key clients and they've had them for the last 15 years is if I change my price and I lose this key client. I'm done. So the, yeah, I'm done. But they might be done anyway. Sure. In this case that Dave's referring to, when we start recommending some things, he's like, if I do that, I'm going to go out of business. And we go, guess what? <laughs> You're circling the drain now, so you you know right. you have nothing to lose. They just have a perception that increasing pricing automatically means you lose a, a customer. Yeah, and that's just the mentality. I think you were kind of alluding to this, Nick. The mentality of the craftsman when they start out as that craftsman and they don't know how to actually run a business, they have that mentality, and it's hard to move them out of that. But every business owner, every shop owner, needs to be a professional business owner. Yeah, we learned that lesson really early in the days of our shop. We were just running around like chickens with our head cut off and read this book, The E-Myth, which I'm mm. sure we've, I've mentioned before. The, the right? baker. I mean, that yeah. was like the story of the baker. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Just because you're a good technician, a craftsman in that industry mm -hmm. does not mean you're going to be good at running a business. And you have to learn about running the business. Yep. And this is what, uh, yeah, this is what we're all just collectively all about. So as yeah. far as these levers, right, we were talking about different levers, levers to pull to increase your multiple. So some of them are internal to your business nailing down your processes, getting your systems in order, having a strong leadership team. And then some of them are who you're serving. So you talked about not being diversified with your customer base, having one or two customers. And then Dave was talking about, okay, what industry are you in? Is it, is it medical or aerospace where you can charge more? The last episode, or maybe it was two episodes ago, where we talked about that pro shop customer who got ITAR certified as like a ticket to ride into an industry where they can do more lucrative work and 
increase the value of their business. So would you say that you guys focus more on the inside of the business in terms of like how to get more efficient, get more effective, get more productive? Or is it more on the external marketing side of how to get into more lucrative markets? We work on a formula. There's a formula that we have. It's called business acumen times technical skill equals your success rate. So if your technical skill level is like a nine or 10, most businesses know their business. They know how to run a machine and they can make a part. But the business acumen side and teaching that level, teaching that line of knowledge. So if you have a nine times a two, you have an 18% chance of success. Now, success doesn't mean going in and out of business, but it means are you thriving mm-hmm. or are you just surviving? So one more time with that, that formula, that equation again. It's business acumen times technical skill equals your success rate. Sure. And the success of, is your business really thriving? You're making a lot of profit or not? So I might make a great five axis part and get $235 an hour for the automotive industry. And I might make a great five axis part and... for the medical robotic assisted surgery market. But in medical or in the automotive world, I might get a five times multiple. Mm -hmm. Same dollar, but that's worth five times that. In robotic assisted surgery, I saw a company this year go for 21 times. So and, same and they were a contract manufacturer? They were a contract manufacturer. So they weren't the OEM? They were not. So wow. I, that, that's okay. a question I have for you guys, too. So the three hosts here, Jim's a contract manufacturer, Jason's industrial distributor, integrator, and we're mostly an OEM. So different multiples on where you're at there too, right? So I imagine if you have a product, you have a higher multiple than if you're a contract manufacturer, but that's just in my head. I'd have to research those multiples. I'm not quite sure. But one of the things we do when we talk about our brand promise and are we at risk in our brand promise? Well, when we do our initial assessment, usually a full day assessment, we have encountered clients who were doing pretty good financially. So how do we meet our brand promise when they have a seven to 10% operating profit already. Well, if, if it's a 7 to 10% operating profit and most of your work is in automotive, we're going to suggest that you get on ProShop, get the AS9100 so we can move you into some aerospace space. Mm. And so that's how we double your valuation. So we're probably going to fine tune your profitability, but we're probably going to move you to a different industry if you're doing well in your current industry. So So does diversification add to the multiple also? So like if you were already in aerospace, if you then move into automotive and you say I'm 50-50 automotive and aerospace, is that a bigger multiple than say just aerospace by itself? That would probably dilute it. So you got aerospace and space. So Mm -hmm. if you're in aerospace, we'd probably say, hey, start leaning into some space work. Okay. So that diversification amongst, make sure you don't just have one client. Right. You don't want more than 30% of your business at any one client. Yeah. So that's interesting because I have a good friend who specifically leads M&A for medical device manufacturing. And so like that's the only thing he looks at. And so I've never had this discussion of multiples with him, but I imagine he's not going to look for somebody that does 50-50 because it's not a part of their mission. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're in the medical device arena, they're looking for other companies in the medical device arena because that's a specialty. Right. And you don't develop that skill set in 18 months. But there are a lot of companies that are doing, say, space, satellite parts, aerospace parts that are also doing automotive, commercial, nuclear, everything like that. Well, aerospace, AS9100 is almost parallel to ISO 1345, which is a medical standard. So a medical device company might look at an AS9100 company and say, ah, okay, they're following the same documentation, the same practices. ITAR compliant is actually more stringent than what it is in the 1345 standard. Mm -hmm. So it's actually... They should uh, all be really stringent. 
They, they should. <laughs> they, they should always do the right They're thing. They're all, right. uh, you know, in the life-saving <laughs> yes. arena. But having that, it makes those companies valuable. So if somebody's doing half medical and half space work, like this gentleman we were talking about, he was half medical and half space, and he was very attractive to a medical device manufacturer. Okay. So if you're going to add a new marketer, it seems obvious that you're going to want to choose to diversify in areas that trade at a higher multiple than what you're currently in. Then diversification's more valuable. So but if you go the other way, the diversification doesn't help you. Is that kind of what I'm hearing? Yes. There's basically, there's five plans. Okay. There's a sales plan. There's a marketing plan. There's a finance plan. There's an operational plan. And there's a management management succession plan. Those are your five levers. There's actually mm-hmm. five levers. Gotcha. So if you're doing great financially, well, then you work on your operations plan. If you're doing great financially and operationally, then you have a sales and marketing and a management succession. You focus on those. And is this all in tandem or is there a sequence? Like, okay, we're always going to want to make sure we got this lever pulled before. Yeah, they're all in tandem. Okay, I mean, gotcha. yeah, to Dave's point, you may have a strength area. And so we're going to focus less on that strength area and focus on some of the weaknesses. But uh, we also want to leverage the strength as well. Absolutely. But when we talk about the management plan, I mean, that's the real opportunity. And that's where we speak of business acumen. These business owners, we say, how do you guys determine who's going to be a lead? Who's going to be a supervisor? Well, you know, the best machinist. And we all know that the best machinists probably aren't going to be good. You want him machining parts. Him or her machining parts. I have this discussion about sales all the time. You don't want to necessarily pull your best salesperson and make him a sales manager. You want him selling. No, I think my best salespeople would be my worst sales managers in most cases. Because it's kind of an inherently, and I don't mean this in the wrong way, but it's inherently kind of like a self-centered role where you got to focus on your clients and your growth and then... But that was always the trajectory. It's like the exact opposite where you got to make everyone else successful and and you eat last. So, yeah. so when you ask the question, what percent turnover do you have? Uh, typically, there's not a good answer to that, but you can ask enough questions and get a feel for 20, 30, 40% turnover in the workforce. That will kill your profitability. Oh, yeah. And the typical reason for turning over workforce is uh, poor managers. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just running people away. Yep. So that's a cultural issue from a management plan standpoint. So we dive in there and okay, you got to train your frontline managers to be managers, tend to the caring and feeding of your people. So it's the great game of business and we love it. We have the five plans and our five plans cover a lot of ground. And that's why we feel like our brand promise is never at risk because there's always an opportunity in a company. Great. So I feel like I could talk about this subject for hours. I really do love this. But maybe if we can bring this to a close and as we talk about the EBITDA side of things, the profit side of things, what's one of the easiest levers to pull inside of a company that you're like, this is the first thing that I go after when you have a new engagement with a client? Forget about the multiple side of things, but just to drive more revenue or drive more profit. I make sure the business owners are valuing what their service is. So if I'm doing three axis... So it goes back to that Bridgeport versus five axis work. It's really understanding your value of what you're doing. Are you doing Bridgeport work? Are you doing, I have a $700,000 machine, five axis work. And then what are you charging for that? Are you charging market rate? It's easy come and say, hey, just raise your prices. But a lot of people don't understand their value. And when you lean into your value, oftentimes that increases price. Oftentimes it increases, you lean into pro shop and it increases efficiency. And you take those two things and that's all in your gross margin. Gross margin always flows down to profit. And that really is where that leans. 
Yeah, and I kind of joke around about Bridgeport. Hopefully, nobody out is out there running old school Bridgeports anymore. <laughs> oh, maybe in the tool room. Well, yeah, maybe in the tool room. There you go. <laughs> Not for production, though. So if if I was a skeptic and I was on the other end of this, and it's like, okay, these guys are going to give me some great ideas. They're going to tell me about these five levers, and there's going to be a cost to you know. What yeah, they and they're going to charge me all this money, and I'm not going to really see any big benefit to or, it because that's like the typical thing you think when it comes to consulting. Or they're going to require me to spend all this money on other stuff to, in order to get me there. So, right, right. So as far as those five plans, right? Do each of those plans require a significant investment? I imagine if you have a customer that doesn't have any form of ERP system or any way to pull the true KPIs that a manager would use to motivate his people towards a more profitable company, you would say, okay, well, you got to get something like that, right? In most cases, but you know, we come in and as Dave said, we do our analysis of the company and we figure out which of the five plans we need to focus on. Our monthly rate is a very modest monthly rate, and we have two calls, a two-hour call earlier in the month where we talk about marketing, sales, and finance, and a call later in the month where we talk about operations and management team. And that's the commitment that the business owner has to make. And then we get after it. And and we're not going to do as we say do. We're going to come alongside and we make trips. Our last call wasn't a very good call. We're on our way down there. Something's going on. And it's we find out it's a family member, they lost an important key employee or something like that. Mm-hmm. So th- this is, when we talk about three years, it's a journey that we're going to come alongside that business owner. It's not a, we're going to drop our stuff on your front doorstep. And here's we'll here's my book. Later. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like that at all. You're going to be engaged with somebody for three plus years. Absolutely. And that's why Dave says at Christmas time, was, we're two grown men crying because of the love that we get from our clients. And th- at that time of the year, wow, I have money for Christmas this year. I I've never had money for Christmas. Yeah. Or I can give bonuses and yeah, you know put a right. smile yeah. on the face of my team. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. we have it's basically we have an onboarding. Mm-hmm. It's a full day assessment. There's a charge for that. It's not astronomical. It's extremely fair. And then we have the monthly fee and that's it. And on the back end of that, our system is so bulletproof that a lot of equity companies, venture capitalists, or private investors are like, hey, if you have any companies that are wanting to sell, we want to buy them. So oftentimes, if people join what we do, they have people that are wanting to buy them as soon as they get things in place because we're pinged every You're week. like a feeder system for um, so we private do, equity. We do yeah, because private equity doesn't want to, a lot of them don't want to fix a company that's, that's in that type of a situation. Right, right. You know, in fact, they want to increase value, but they don't want to start out in the basement. Yep, they actually send us companies. It's like that. So if you're looking to sell your business in three years, you could join the Pro Shop Profit Growth System. And the day you start, you have a buyer sitting there waiting for you to mature and sell, wow. which is unique. So there's a lot of people listening who are in that seat. Yeah. My kids don't want to take over. I have no succession mm-hmm. plan and they want that three year window. And we do get something on the back end of that. It's less than half of what a broker charges. It's a match. It's a small matchmaking service we have. You mentioned that pro shop growth system. So the synergy between your two businesses makes total sense to me. Mm-hmm. I get why Paul doesn't want to be EGS and why EGS doesn't want to be pro shop. So how does it work exactly? Is there some sort of bundled agreement deal that you guys have? Yeah, when a customer signs up for pro shop, they automatically get a small little intro coaching call with the EGS guys, and if they want to engage with their services, then that's an additional charge. But ProShop, sort of by itself, the typical response we get when we ask our clients is it increases their throughput and or profitability about 25% just by getting more efficient on the floor, scheduling, you know, all the things, setup production. But that's not enough. There's a lot more there, mm-hmm. a lot more low-hanging fruit that these guys can help with. So it's super complimentary because when Mike talks about the finance and accounting being the language, like ProShop is the system that's spitting that stuff out. Sure. It's, it's remarkable how many shops, even if they have a prior ERP, 
that don't know how much money they're making. They don't know which jobs are losing money, making money. And the 80-20 rule applies here, right? We went through this at our own shop. We called it kind of a brutal name. We call it the kill the losers plan. (laughs) And so when we focused on those 20% of jobs that were causing 80% of our losses and we killed those, it's amazing how much more profit we made. Sure. Right. And that turns into a multi- yeah, it turns into uh, tomorrow company value. Yeah. Wow. So to get started, do they contact you, Paul? Or is this only open to pro shop users? No, if they want a better ERP, of course, we're here. Yep. But if they don't, the EGS guys, you know, work directly as well. But we think as a package, it's a more powerful system. But yeah, both ways work for sure. Yeah. yeah. If they reach out to us, first thing we do is say, hey, where did you hear about us? And if they heard about us from a webinar or something where I'm with Paul, we send them to Paul and I reach out to Paul has an awesome assistant that Mike and I talk about how we're going to get one of those all the time. Yeah. <laughs> and we said, hey, can you email this person a proposal? And then that's how it goes. But that's how we just were very synergistic in how we work together. Yeah, that's awesome. Jim, you know the best advertising is straight from your customer's mouth. Absolutely. As a matter of fact, you just sent me that LinkedIn, some Cody Gidry, operations manager at Coastal Machine and Supply, put on his LinkedIn some time ago, Sitting in our closing meeting of our first AS9100 surveillance audit, I hear the auditor say these words, quote, ProShop ERP has all of the processes laid out. All you have to do is follow the systems and you'll be fine. End of quote. I love it. We just had our first one-year surveillance audit two weeks ago, and the auditor had never done an audit using ProShop, and he loved it. Well, shout out to Paul, his whole team. They're doing tremendous things. Go to ProShopERP.com and find out more. Awesome. So in order to get a hold of you guys, we go to EBITDAGrowSystems.com. Yep. Great. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure. I mean, I've definitely learned a thing or two here. I'm not a manufacturer. You know, I sell tools to manufacture, but I'd love to have somebody like you that operates in my industry to help me out. I mean, I think that everybody should be calling you. Your phones should be ringing off the hook. It just seems like such a great service that you guys are bringing to the industry. So thank you for that. Thank you. Well, no matter where you're at in the industry, there's one thing that's always true. If you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. 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 Thanks for listening to the Making Chips Podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So, Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution. And many of them are at makingchips.com. <laughs>